Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So here's the question, and it's, it's not on your sheet yet, but the question for tonight is this. Um, in the struggle of the Christian life, when you face temptations, when you face trials, when you face hardships, what is it, and you guys tell me, what is it that gets you through? What is it that helps you stay strong to the end, hold fast to the end, persevere to the end? What's a word that we use that's a big Christian word? And we looked at it last week. There's three big virtues in the Christian life, but what's the one that really helps us endure to the end in the midst of life's chaotic struggles? Hope. Hope. I was seeing a hand. I'm hearing a voice. Did you have something different to say, Tiffany? Um, I was going to say faith in Jesus Christ. Faith. Yeah, there's, last week we ended with faith, hope, and love. And, and they're all inter- inter- intertwined, but I think Fred's right. It's hope. Now, Christian hope is different than worldly hope. What's worldly hope? Cross my fingers. I hope that this works out, but I'm really not sure. I'm hoping. What is Christian hope? Christian hope is an actual conviction that's based upon God himself. And that's what we're going to look at tonight is this whole idea of Christian hope. Now, let's just back up. We're in chapter 6. And let's read verse 11 and 12. And that sets us up from, from where we're going to look at at verses 13 through 20. And this is a kind of a recap from last week, but it ties into where we're going tonight. So chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of what? Hope until when? The end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says there last week where we ended up with, I want you to have hope. I want you to have hope to the end. I don't want you to be sluggish. And by the way, I want you to imitate the faith of those who had patience. And what he's going to do now is he's going to give us the greatest example of someone who had hope to the end and patience. And it's the Old Testament character, Abraham. Abraham is mentioned more than any other character, I think, in the book of Hebrews. He's mentioned a lot. He'll show up again in chapter 11. So here's where we're going. From chapter 6, where we are tonight, all the way through chapter 10, the whole point is this, in one big nutshell, okay? One big ticket over the next few, however long it takes us. The way we have hope to the end, is because Jesus is our high priest. And he's going to unpack that for the rest of the chapters. But before he does that, he's going to show us how Abraham had hope to the end. And it wasn't because Abraham's faith was all that great, even though it was, but it was more in the fact that God's promise to Abraham was so great. So here's the question. Do we get to heaven based upon how great our faith is or how great God is? 
how great God is. Because if it's determined about our faith, sometimes is your faith strong every day? What happens when you're barely hanging on? Is your faith in your faith or is your faith in the God of promise? Okay, Because there's some teaching out there. I'm, I'm not even started yet, so I'm going to start preaching and then we'll start. Okay, So there's some, there's some teachings out there in the world that say stuff like this. If you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick, you wouldn't have problems, you wouldn't have financial difficulties. So what you need to do is you need to have more faith. And what happens when you don't have financial breakthroughs? And what happens if you get sick? What happens? You did not have enough faith, and so it's therefore your fault. But I can help you have better faith, Risa. Just give money to my ministry, and then my anointing will get to you, and you will have faith. If you don't have enough money, yeah. So there's this whole mindset out there that we have to produce enough faith to make it to the end. Now, do all Christians make it to the end? Yes. But is it because our faith is so stellar at times or because God is so faithful to keep us? It's because God is faithful. And that's really what we're going to look at tonight, the faithfulness of God. So here's the question, the opening question for tonight with that little introduction. Can God be trusted to keep His promises? Basic question, right? And obviously the answer is what? Absolutely. There is the unchangeable, and that's a key word, there is the unchangeable certainty of God's promises to His people. And one of the greatest examples of this is God's covenant with Abraham. So with that being said, with that as an introduction, let's now turn to the text for tonight, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And that's all I think we can handle tonight, because... I didn't want to dive into Melchizedek because that gets kind of confusing. and I need some more time to study, personally. So um, just to be honest with you, um, having been in Denver today and just a lot of stuff, um, so, so I felt like we could handle 13 through 20, or at least I can handle. All right, so here we go. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a lot in those passages of Scripture, but this, this section breaks up into three sections. Okay, So we're going to look at the, the, the three parts of this passage of Scripture. Here's part one, the example of Abraham. Now what does he say there in verse 13? For when God made a promise to Abraham. So we have to ask the question, 
When did God make a promise to Abraham? Actually, there's five times he did it. And we're going to look at that tonight. So keep your finger in Hebrews, but let's go back to Genesis because I love Genesis so much. And we spent a year and a half on Sunday mornings in Genesis. I just thought it would be fun to go back to Genesis because it's some good stuff. And maybe you didn't even remember what I preached all those years ago. So you'll get it again. So go to Genesis chapter 12. This is called what we call the Abrahamic covenant or the covenant that God made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm going to explain what a covenant is in just a moment because God's going to reaffirm this covenant on multiple times. But um, in the Hebrews passage, God says He swore an oath to Abraham. Okay? God swore an oath, which we'll talk about that in just a moment because that's an interesting terminology for God to swear an oath. Um, And we'll talk about that. So let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is the first time we actually see the situation with, with Abraham. Now, before we get to this, does anybody remember where Abraham was living when God called him? He was living in Ur of the Chaldees. That's modern-day Iraq. He was a moon-worshipping idol, worshipping man. He worshipped the moon. He and his family were idol worshippers. Okay? So talk about sovereign grace. It wasn't like Abraham woke up one day and started looking for God. (laughs) Abraham was steeped in pagan idolatry way far away from Jerusalem or Israel or Palestine in Iraq. And God sovereignly shows up to him and says, Abraham, out of all the people on the face of the earth, I'm choosing you to make a covenant with, and I'm going to bless you. So here's here's where we have it. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. God speaks, I will make a I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. We see here seven blessings that God gives to Abraham. Now, I want you to notice something. In these blessings, is God asking Abraham to do anything? Who's the one making the promise? God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. That's important. God is making the promise to Abraham. So what are these promises? First, he tells Abraham, you'll be a great nation. Now, how old is Abraham when this happens? He's 75. He's 75. You're going to be a great... What, happened, what, what would happen if somebody came to you as a 75-year-old man or woman and said, hey, you're going to be a great nation? And he says, now, wait a minute. Here's a problem. My wife, Sarah, is old too. We're kind of past childbearing age, and we have no kids. How are we going to be a great nation? God, you're going to have to do something here to give us kids. And that's an issue. Okay, the second thing he says to Abraham... God would personally bless him. And as you go through and look at the book of Genesis, you realize that God did bless him with material wealth as well as spiritual blessings. Um, Thirdly, God will make Abraham's name great. Now let's back up. Do you guys remember? Look at Genesis. Just look at your Bible. Genesis, what comes before Genesis chapter 12? 
Okay, you guys are good at math. Genesis chapter 11. (laughs) At the beginning of Genesis chapter 11, what story do we have or what account do we have in Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel. Do you guys remember? What was the whole point of the Tower of Babel? We want to make our name great. Make a name for ourselves. And what does God do? God says, no, I'm going to scatter you. So how did they want to make their name great? Through power and prestige and building a tower and making a name for themselves. God comes to Abraham and says, listen, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. But how is God going to make Abraham's name great? How is his greatness going to come? His greatness is not going to come through um, aggressiveness, pride, power, Abraham's greatness is going to come through his humble faith and his grace. When we talk about Abraham today, what's the one thing we, we what's the one word that comes to your mind when you hear about Abraham? What? Faith. A man of faith. Does does anybody think of he's powerful or he was aggressive or he was a warrior? No. But Abraham is great because he was a man of faith. Fourthly, God says you'll be a personally a blessing to others as you go through and, and read. Almost every person that, Gen- that uh, Abraham comes in contact with in Genesis is actually blessed. Fifth and sixth, they're kind of together. God will bless those who bless Abraham and those who dishonor him will be cursed. Now, but I want you to focus on the very last statement there. In you, all the, what does it say? Families. families. Does anybody have a different translation besides families? Does it say nations, maybe? Peoples, okay, so it says families, peoples, families, peoples, okay. Um, This really, guys, the seventh um, blessing is ultimately God desires to bless all the nations through the coming Messiah, Jesus. How are all the nations of the earth going to be blessed through Abraham? Because was not Abraham the father of the Hebrews, the Jewish people? Okay? This is ultimately talking about Jesus. Now, how can Abraham bless the entire world? Here's the answer. This is actually a missionary verse about Jesus. Remember back in Genesis 3.15 when God says to Satan, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. That's a prophecy about Jesus. Now the seed of the woman is going to come from Abraham. He will bring salvation not only to Jews, but to all the people groups on earth. What would happen if Jesus only came for the Jews? Would any of us here be saved? Unless you're Jewish. I'm not. It's for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. By the way, wasn't Abraham a Gentile? He wasn't, there wasn't Jews yet. Actually, there were no Jews yet. He wasn't even circumcised yet. God called him out of pagan... So here's the beauty of it. God calls Abraham out of pagan idolatry and saves him by grace. That's what he does to you and me. He calls us out of idolatry and saves us by grace. <coughs> to come into his family. Now, let's go to Galatians on your sheet there. Paul gives a lot of commentary in the book of Galatians, especially in the book of, of Romans, on Abraham and his faith and, and how it relates to Jesus and how it relates to us. So Galatians 3, 7-9. through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay, does it say it's the Israelites who are the sons of Abraham? Who does it say? 
those of faith and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So how does Paul interpret Genesis 12.3? He says, That blessing that God gave is through those who are of faith. Not just ethnicity, but on your, your faith. Hello, Hello, come on in. Good. Do we have extra sheets, guys? Or? Okay. Cool. We're in the book of Hebrews. And then look at Galatians 3.29 at the end of that passage. He says this. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you belong to Jesus, if you've trusted Christ for salvation, you are Abraham's offspring. Okay, so what was God's plan from the very beginning? Was God's plan from the very beginning just to have the Jews? It says right here, God's plan from the very beginning was that through the Jews, through Abraham and his offspring, eventually would come Christ and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, when do we see that fully realized? When do we see all the peoples, all the families, all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues, all the ethnicities, all the ethne that the Bible talks about, when do we see the full culmination of all the nations of the earth blessed? Well, we see it in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, when they sing a new song to Jesus. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from or out of, as the Greek text really says, every tribe, language, people, and nation. Okay? So, from the very beginning, God makes a promise to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. And I'm choosing you to be a blessing. I'm choosing you to have an offspring. I'm choosing you to be a nation. I'm choosing you to, make a, to have a great name. And from you is going to be the offspring of the woman that's eventually going to be Jesus and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. That's, that's the promise that God initially makes to Abraham. Now, he does it again. So let's go to Reve- or Revelation. Let's go to Genesis. Let's go way at the very end. Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 through 6, because this is an interesting passage of Scripture where God actually reiterates the covenant that He made with him. And I want to look at all of chapter 15, because it's actually probably one of my favorite passages in Genesis. Either Genesis 15 or all the Abraham stories I think are my favorite. Genesis 15, Genesis 22, and of course I like the whole Joseph narrative. So pretty much all of Genesis I love. So um, here we go, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is 
the, the promise that God makes to Abraham that he's going to have a son and descendants from that son. But God says, don't fear, Abraham. Why? I am your... What does he say there? I'm your shield. The sovereign Lord is his shield, his protector, his refuge, his strong tower. We find this whole idea of God being a a strong tower or being a shield. Psalm chapter 3, verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Psalm 18.30, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. I want you to go back and circle that word refuge. Did it say it in the other passage too? Um, oh, you were shielded about me and the lifter of my head. Okay. Circle that word refuge. You guys tell me, what does it mean to take refuge in someone? To hide. Okay. Okay. We're going to come to that in a moment, but what word comes from refuge? It's like, yeah, like a Tom Petty song. You don't have to live like a refuge. Like a refugee. What's a refugee? Someone who's running from something because they did something. Okay, do you guys remember cities of refuge in the Old Testament? There were cities of refuge. And what happened was, if you accidentally killed someone, it was accidental manslaughter, God made a provision for you to actually go to what's called an asylum city. I know that's kind of in the the news now. But you were allowed to go to a city of refuge because here's what would happen. If the family member of the person you killed wanted to take vengeance on you, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, they could chase you down and kill you. So God provided a way for you to have refuge. But why are you running? You're running because you committed a crime and you go to a place where you are safe. Spiritually, and we'll come back to this because actually the writer of Hebrews addresses this, spiritually we've committed a crime against God. We're running for our lives because of our sin, but God welcomes us into his city of refuge. Okay? He's a shield. And and God says that to Abraham, I'm a shield, I'm your refuge. So not only does God promise to be Abraham's shield, but also he promises to reward Abraham to bless him with children. Now, here's the point. Abraham's 75 years old and God gives him this huge promise and says, listen, you're going to have, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to have all these offspring. And what is Abraham thinking? I don't have kids. At least to have to have one. You're saying I'm going to have this huge nation. I just need one to start it with. And Abraham's saying, it's not going to happen. My wife is not a spring chicken. <laughs> and my servant's going to ha- I'm going to have to give my, my, my servant Eleazar. He's going to have to be my heir. And God says, listen, I want you to do something. Go outside and look at the starry sky. And go up and, and actually count all the stars, Abraham. Now, astronomers tell us that on a good clear night with no pollution, we can possibly see up to 6,000 stars in the night sky with the naked eye. Astronomers also estimate that there are about 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way alone. Outside of that, there are millions and millions of galaxies. Now, is the point that Abraham goes out there and starts counting them? 
And then when he gets to like 6,000, he has to... The point is, what's the point? He's not to individually count the stars. What's the point God gives him? You, Abraham, are going to have a vast, a vast offspring that's more numerous than the stars in the sky. Now, if you're Abraham, can you conceive of that? I don't even have one son yet. My wife is old. I'm, se- I, I, I'm in my 70s. There's no way this can happen. And actually, if you find out the story, how old is Abraham when Isaac's born? He's 100. So how long does Abraham have to wait from when God made the promise to when Ab- Isaac's born? 25 years. Now, he's already 75, and by the time he's 100 is when Isaac's born. But he's thinking to himself, listen, th- th- this is crazy. So, who are the countless stars? Are they just the Israelites? No. These countless stars that Abraham sees are none other than all the people of God from all ages who will be in heaven because they had faith in Christ. So, if you're a Christian, when Abraham looked up and saw the starry sky, you were included in that. This is not just some Old Testament story for good Bible trivia. This promise to Abraham has implications on you. So God even had you in mind when he was given this. Actually, God had you in mind before the foundation of the earth. But when he was given this this promise to Abraham, you were in that. And look at verse 6. I think verse 6 is the the most. Actually, let's go look at the passage in Revelation. Because, again, you go to the end of the Bible and see how it all turns out. Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10. John says, after this I looked and behold, what? A great multitude that no one could count or number from where every nation from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb so who are this countless stars there's the offspring are stars they're also called later on he's going to say they look like sand on the seashore so can you count sand on the seashore i pick up each individual granule of sand, I count each middle star. What does Revelation say? It's a multitude that no one can... Okay, so is this a huge offspring that, that Abraham's being promised? Okay. Here's the amazing thing. Does he have any kids at this point? No. And he's 75 years old. But look at verse 6. It's the most important verse in Genesis possibly because Paul refers to it and so does James. What does verse 6 say? And he... What did he do? He believed the Lord. And what did God do? God counted it to him as righteousness. The word believe there in the Hebrew text, in the the language of of Hebrew, is a strong word that means to trust wholeheartedly. To me, that is where Abraham is the man of faith at this point in his life because he has no kids. He has no children. And God simply says to him, you're going to have offspring that are going to be more numerous than the stars. And what could Abraham have said at that point? Yeah, right, God. Who are you, God? That's ridiculous, God. I'm laughing at that God. I'm, I'm, I'm turning my nose at that God. What does Abraham simply do? I mean, think of, think of what he does there. He believed. He had faith. He had faith. Now, Abraham's not required to do anything here, is he? salvation by grace alone through faith alone in in a future Christ alone because God says 
I'm doing this. And all that was required of Abraham was what? Belief. Now, how are we saved today? Does God require us to do anything? What's the one requirement? We have to believe. And when we believe, what happens? God, God credits or counts as righteous the righteousness of Christ to our account so that we stand in the blood of Christ by faith. Now, let's keep reading because this is where it gets to be awesome. God does something here that God doesn't have to do, but God does. And you have to understand ancient covenants to understand what this is all about. Okay, so I'm going to read this and I'm going to explain it, okay? So here we go. Let's keep reading. Let's, look, let's read verses 7 um, through the end of the chapter here, 7 through 21. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay, two things God promises. One, you're going to have offspring. Two, you're going to have land. Okay, you're going to have offspring and you're going to have land. Those are the two big promises to Abraham in addition to having a great name and being a blessing. God really promises you're going to have offspring, you're going to have land. You're going to have the promised land, you're going to have, the, you're going to have this offspring. And Abraham says, the land, I can't see it, God. I, I can't see it. Look at, look at verse 8. Oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And what did God say to him? Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. What's that a prophecy about? That's a direct prophecy about the Exodus. 400 years later, after Joseph, there's going to be the Exodus, and God's going to bring them out after they've been there afflicted. But verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Euphrates to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and maybe a few parasites. We don't know. Uh, now, here's the point. You may say, what in the world's going on here? Let me see if I can illustrate this on the board here. Back during that culture... When two people wanted to make a covenant or make an agreement, what do we do nowadays? We just kind of, what, spit in our hand and shake on it or, or we go to the bank and we get it notarized and we, we sign off or we sign a contract or, or whatever. Back then, they would take an animal, okay? They would cut the animal in half. So here's half of the animal, here's the other half of the animal. And the, and the two halves represent the two parties that are making the covenant. Okay. And then the two parties would walk 
together between the two animals. So, for example, you have a dead animal here, a dead animal here. The two parties, kind of like our handshake, would walk between the two animals. And the reason they walked between the two animals was to say this. Basically, what they're saying is, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, my end of the agreement, I'm to be like one of these dead animals. I should be killed. So this was an, this was an oath. This was a covenant that was made where two parties agreed to the terms of the covenant. And if one, one didn't hold up his end of the bargain or his end of the covenant, he basically was swearing or saying, I'm to be like this dead animal. Okay, now here's the issue. Does God require Abraham to walk between? Where's Abraham? He's asleep. So this is totally sovereign grace because God has him even in a sleep. Who walks between the two pieces? God does in a flaming pot. Now you may think, well, that's weird. Why is God making a covenant with himself? What's God basically saying? It's all on me. God's basically saying, listen, Abraham, I know you're going to fail, and you're, not, you're never going to keep up your end of the bargain. So if I require you to keep up your end, you're going to be like those dead animals because you can't do it. I love you so much, Abraham, that I myself am going to cut this covenant with you. And, and may it be like, may it be that if, if I'm not true to my word, may I be like a dead animal. Now, obviously, can God be dead? No. So it's a powerful way of God cutting a covenant with Abraham. So let's go to your sheet here so we, I can make sure you, get, you follow along. What the sovereign Lord does now is to give Abraham a visual picture that he is absolutely true to his covenant promises. From the beginning, God has always demonstrated his faithfulness through a blood sacrifice. This was a this sacrificial um, way of cutting an animal in half was, was saying that God's making a covenant in blood. Where else did God make a covenant in blood in the New Testament? Jesus on the cross. The smoking pot and the flaming torch are a symbol of God's manifest, holy, and glorious presence. Now, this is God. In all of his smoking brilliance, cutting a covenant with Abraham. Literally there when it says God made a covenant, literally it's cut a covenant. and We reasonably call it cut a covenant is because they literally cut an animal. Cut an animal in half. And so I've already kind of explained this. In that ancient culture, when two parties would come together and swear an oath or make a binding covenant with one another, they would often invoke a curse upon themselves if they failed to hold up their end of the agreement. So here's the point. This symbolic way of passing through the two cut animals is God's way of making a binding covenant in blood that he will be absolutely true to his covenant promise to Abraham in giving him the promised land. And what is striking about this is that Abraham is asleep the entire time. He's seeing this in a vision. He's a passive participant and seeing what only a sovereign God can do. Only God can fulfill these promises. He's not asking Abraham to work for this or to earn this or to do good works to somehow produce this. God says, I'm going to do this. And if I don't do this, may I invoke a curse upon myself. Now that sounds almost sacrilegious, doesn't it? For God to say, if I don't fulfill my word, may a curse come upon me. Now obviously God can't do that. 
But it's almost as if this is the most powerful way of God saying to Abraham, I am true to my word, that you're going to have the land. And, and what, what is all that Abraham could do? All Abraham could do as a sinner was to believe God. God says, I'm not, I'm not asking you to do anything. Just believe me. Now, at this point, does Abraham have a son? Does Abraham have the land? Does Abraham have a great name? Maybe with a few people. So if you're Abraham, you're thinking, God, you better work quick here because time is ticking. Okay? Now, let's go to Abraham. Abraham. Let's go to Genesis chapter 17. God's going to reaffirm his covenant with Abraham again. Now, think about this. Didn't, couldn't God have only affirmed his covenant with Abraham once and wouldn't that have been good enough? You have to ask the question, why does God do it over and over again? Is it because God needs it? Who needed it? Abraham needed it because he's human, just like we are, and he needs to know that God is true to his promises. And so in a great act of love for Abraham, God comes multiple times to him to reconfirm this covenant. So let's read in Genesis 17 where it's reconfirmed again. Let's just look at verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Remember when we did the names of God last, last semester? Um, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Interesting. What king came from Abraham? Judah, he wasn't a king, but it was prophesied. Who's from the tribe of Judah? David, and eventually Jesus. Think about Abraham probably had no concept of what the King David and ultimately King Jesus would come from him. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring even as after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, this is the first time in the Bible God refers to himself as El Shaddai or God Almighty. And in verse 2, Abraham is told by God, in verse 2 it says, I make my covenant. Had not God already made his covenant? The Hebrew word there really means to reaffirm or reestablish. God's reaffirming it. He's reestablishing it. He's reminding Abram of what he had already promised him. Then he changes his name. And then in verse 8 we see how God's going to relate to the Israelites. I will be their God. They will be my people. All throughout the Old Testament, we hear the repetition of this phrase. You will be my people. I will be your God. Now, we hear that today too, not just as Israelites, but as as Christians. We are God's people and He is our God. Okay, at this point, does Abraham have the land? Does Abraham have the child? Okay, now we fast forward to chapter 22. And as you go past chapter, chapter 22, 
22. What comes before chapter 22? Chapter 21, and Isaac is born. What's Isaac's name mean? Laughter. Why is his name laughter? Because every time they saw that little boy running around, I, you know, Sarah and Abraham just cracked up laughing because they're thinking, how in the world can we have kids this old? I mean, at this age. It doesn't make, it's, it's just hilarious that God would do this. Okay, so finally, we get to Genesis chapter 22. Abraham has his son. And what does God say to Abraham? I want you to take your only son, the son that you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah to me. And does Abraham say, now wait a minute, God. You promised me a son. You promised me offspring. You can't renege on your promises, God. This goes against your character. Does Abraham bargain with God? Let's read Genesis 22. Well, we'll we'll read. Um, I teach that there's when I teach at CCU, um, Colorado Christian University, and, I, and I'm actually teaching this class right now, Old Testament. And the very first threaded discussion they have on their their assignment is to read this Genesis chapter 22. And the, the question is, you know, how do you deal with this? And some of the students had never read the story before in their life, and they're shocked to find that God would ask Abraham to to kill their only son, and they're they're shocked. And I say, go back. After they've like struggled with it, I, I go back and say, go back and look at verse 5 and see if you can find the hint that Moses gives us in verse 5 that's foreshadowing. And we tend to just read right over it. Look at verse 5. Genesis 22, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What is Abraham saying? We're going to go up and worship and we're both coming back. Now, Abraham had no idea what God was going to do, but what's the one thing he knew? Even if I kill my son, God, and Hebrews 11 tells us, we'll go to Hebrews 11 in a few, probably in a couple months. It says that Abraham believed that God could even raise him from the dead. Had Abraham ever seen anybody being raised from the dead at this point? What was the one thing Abraham knew? He heard over and over again, God confirm his promise. God confirm his promise. And so after years and years of hearing that, when God comes to him with this, what's Abraham's posture? What's Abraham's attitude? I've trusted him this far, and I'm going to continue to trust him, even if it doesn't make sense. One thing I do know, either something's going to happen, or even if I kill him, God's going to bring him back, but both of us are coming down the mountain. That's faith. And so we know what happens. He goes up there and he binds Isaac and he takes the knife out and he's about ready to slit Isaac's throat. And let's pick up there in verse um, 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, "Here here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his, instead of his son. Substitutionary atonement pictured right there. Who is offered instead of his son? The ram is offered in the place of the son. Jesus was offered in the place of us as a sacrifice of substitution. So, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. 
And it is said to this day, on that mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now we sometimes stop right there. But let's go to verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not have withheld your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Look at verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Does that sound weird to you? God is swearing to God. When you swear an oath on the Bible, what are you swearing? I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You're appealing to a higher power, right? You're not swearing to yourself. You're swearing to someone that can hold you accountable. Okay? Is there anybody that, that's more accountable to God than God? Can God swear to somebody higher than himself? If he did, he'd cease to be God. Can God swear to somebody lower than himself? No, then it wouldn't be binding. So what does God do here? He says, I swear by myself. I'm swearing an oath to you, Abraham, and I'm the one that's swearing it. Which brings up a question, and we'll talk about this when we get back to Hebrews. Isn't the bare word of God enough all these times for Abraham to believe? Yes. Why does God swear an oath? Does he have to swear an oath? He doesn't do it for himself. He's doing it for who? For Abraham. So God does two things to Abraham. God gives him a promise, and on top of that, God swears an oath. It's a double, it's a double whammy, I guess. A double way of saying that this is God's ultimate promise. Now let's go to chapter 24. This is the, the last time we really see Abraham um, before he dies. His last recorded words. And um, we see an old man who's gone through numerous tests, has grown into maturity and trust in the sovereignty and providence of God. But let me ask you a question. We won't read 24, but it's just basically the end of Abraham's life. When Abraham died, did he have a son? Yes. Who was his son? Isaac. When Abraham died, was Jacob around? If you do the math, Jacob was around. So he had a son and a grandson when he died. Who came from Jacob? The twelve tribes and it wasn't until when 400 years later when they were in Egypt that they were numbering in the millions you know the millions so question did Abraham get what was promised to him while he was alive did he ever get the promised land he never got the promised land and he only got one son and a grandson So the question then becomes, let's go to Hebrews for a moment. Let's go back to Hebrews. Because the writer tells us something. So let's go back to where we're supposed to camp out tonight. So let's go to verse 13. 
For when, Hebrews 6, 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Did we not just see that? Saying, direct quote from Genesis 22, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. How can the writer of Hebrews say he obtained the promise? When did he receive the promise? Well, we find out later on in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 11, when Abraham received the promises when he stepped foot into heaven and saw Jesus, of whom his offspring ultimately would be. Now talk about waiting patiently. What does it say about Abraham? He patiently waited. He waited, he waited, he waited, and God told him to kill his son, and God came through. And really, at the end of Abraham's life, he died a good old age, but he never fully saw the offspring. He never saw the great nation. He never got to enter the land. He died, in a a sense, without actually materially, physically seeing the promise. But when he died and went to heaven, he got the full promise. So what's the application for us today? Here's the application for us today. Although we may have to exercise extreme patience in waiting on God and His timing, it does not mean that He is any less sovereign or trustworthy. In other words... God grows our faith through waiting the same way He did through Abraham's faith. So the key word I want you to remember in this first section is wait. Wait. If there ever was a person that in the Bible who had to wait, who was it? It was Abraham. But he endured to the end remained faithful to the end and got what was promised to him. He had to get to heaven to get it. Now go back up to verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but what? Imitators of those through what? Faith and patience inherit the promises. So what are we really supposed to do? We're supposed to imitate the faith of Abraham. And the faith of Abraham means we wait patiently on God. Now, here's the question. Here's the rub. Who likes to wait? When you're waiting on God's timing and when you're waiting for God to act, what are you tempted to think? God must not be trustworthy. I can't trust Him because He's not coming through in my timetable. He's not coming through in the way that I want Him to. God must be you know, taking a nap up in heaven or something. Now, we would never out loud, any of us here would out loud say that. None of us would out loud say that. But in our heart of hearts, how many times have you felt that? That maybe God just wasn't, you would never, none of us here would ever articulate that, but maybe in in, in those dark moments in your life, you felt it in your heart, can I really trust God? And you probably wouldn't even tell anybody else that, but you may have felt it to yourself. And so Abraham waited. Now, here's the question I asked at the beginning. Is God trustworthy? Yes. So here's where we get to part two. The finality of sworn oaths. 
Okay, so what he's going to do here, the writer argues for the legal system. The same thing they had back then we had today. Look at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Okay, so when you go to court and you swear an oath to tell the truth, what do you do? Why do we swear oaths, by the way? Do you know that our whole legal system, the Judeo-Christian legal system, is built upon the human depravity of man? Why do you swear an oath that you'll tell the truth when you go into court? Because you, it's sinful. Because in our human nature, we will lie. So we have to have something higher holding us accountable to do that. Why do you sign a contract? Because we're tempted to what? Break a contract, renege on a contract. We... In our human legal system, we need something, a higher authority to hold us accountable. And that's basically what he's saying. When you go and sign an oath, when you sign a contract, when you swear an oath in a legal system, in a legal document, basically what you're doing is, is you're, you're signing your life away saying that this is final. This is a binding contract. Okay. So he argues from human experience. But look at what he says there in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchanging, unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Okay, so how does this relate to God? Why does, and I asked this earlier, why does God have to swear an oath? Isn't his bare word enough? And the answer is this. Yes, his bare word's enough. But what does it say in the text there? God wanted to show it more convincingly. God's not doing this because He needs to do it. God is doing this to be more convincing for our purposes so that we, our faith, can be strengthened. In swearing an oath to Abraham and ultimately to us, He's giving a double security, two unchangeable things that will be final. What are the two things that will be unfinal, the two unchangeable things? God's Word and God's oath. And they're almost the same thing because His oath is only as good as His Word and His Word is, only, is what supports the oath. So God could have just given us His Word, but He says, listen, because you're weak in faith, because I know that you're going to struggle, and because you really need to know the convincing power of my, of my uh, commitment to you, I'm giving you my Word, and I'm backing it up with an oath. And by the way, I can't swear by anybody higher than myself, so I'm swearing by myself. Same thing He, he told to, um, to Abraham. So let's ask some questions as we go through this. Question. What is God's sovereign purpose in His promise to Abraham? Is it just so Abraham can be blessed? No, we we looked at that. What is the ultimate purpose in Abraham's promise, the covenant? The answer to save His sinful people through the seed or offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Okay, second question. Who did God confirm this promise? Is it who? Should be how. That's my fault. How did God confirm this promise to his people? Okay. How did God say, listen, I'm, I'm swearing to you that you will be saved by grace through Jesus? How did God do it? He swore an oath to show in a more convincing manner that we are heirs to the promise. Notice what he says there. In verse 17, 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to who? Does it say to Abraham? He could have said to Abraham, but that's not what he says there. What does he say? Heirs of the promise. Who are heirs of the promise? That's us. God did this unchangeable thing. He guaranteed it with an oath. We are the heirs of the promise that he made to Abraham. Why is God's promise to us so secure? Because of his unchangeable nature and his absolute truthfulness. Notice what it says there. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? His word and his oath. Verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to what? Lie. Did you know that it's impossible for God to do something? It's impossible for him to lie. That's great encouragement, right? There's some things God can't do. I thought God was all-powerful. He is all-powerful, but there's some things that God, by his very nature, will not allow himself to do. And one of those things is God cannot lie. Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Isn't that a promise? If God God has said it, is he not going to do it? If God has spoken, is he going to fulfill it? Why is he going to do those things? Because he doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. He's not a man. Do we change our minds all the time? Do we lie? Can our word be broken? Okay, we're, we're untrustworthy sinners. For Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Okay, so let's just stop and get the picture in our mind here. The writer of Hebrews, let's just put it, let's just distill it down on what he's trying to say. He's saying God swore an oath to Abraham by himself that he would fulfill his promises. And that promise comes to us because ultimately Jesus is the one that it was promised about and we have a relationship with Jesus. And we can absolutely trust God. We can trust His promises. He's made it doubly sure with His word and with His oath. And in case we ever get confused or we get off track or we lose faith, we just look to the fact that God has guaranteed this because He cannot lie. But the question then is, okay, how is it described? How are we described in this whole relationship? How have we responded to this unchangeable, solid, and final oath sworn by God to us as His people? It's interesting the language that's used there. Look at the end of verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have what? Fled for... Didn't I talk about cities of refuge? Who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to do what? Hold fast to the hope set before us the imagery here is that we have fled to him okay think about this we talked about cities of refuge and in a city of refuge back in the old testament when you fled what was your station before you fled 
What were you? You were a, you were a criminal, okay? So you were a guilty criminal. And what did you do? You fled to refuge, okay? And fled, you were a refugee on the run because you had committed a crime. Now let's think about the Exodus for a moment. In a sense, did not the Israelites, were not the Israelites refugees when they came out of Egypt? Okay, well, what were they refugees from? They weren't criminals, what were they? They were slaves. So they were slaves and they fled into the refuge of what? The wilderness and God's protection. So the imagery here is you've got, in one case, criminals, guilty criminals fleeing for refuge, slaves fleeing for refuge, guilty criminal slaves. Let's talk about us. In the same way, we were in spiritual bondage, slaves, under the tyranny of sin and Satan, and through faith in Christ, we have fled that prison and found a new home of refuge with the Father as His children. We are no longer guilty criminals. We're no longer slaves. We have fled as refugees. And where is our ultimate destination? We have refuge in the arms of the Father because of Christ. Now, because that's true, because we have found refuge in God, what does he tell us there at the end of verse 18? We who have fled for refuge might have what? Strong encouragement to do what? Hold fast to the hope set before us. How many times, you should, we should go back and count how many times the word hold fast shows up in Hebrews. Have we not seen that over and over again? Hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. He says, listen, here's the strong encouragement. Here's the strong encouragement. You were once a guilty criminal. You were once a slave, but you fled that, and God has accepted you into His family. You're secure in God's hands. You're secure in His grip. Christ is now your Savior. And because of that, that's a strong encouragement for you to hold fast to that. Now, let's just back up and talk about the original audience of the book of Hebrews. Who's he writing to? Jewish Christians living in Rome. And they were tempted to do two things. What were the two things that they were tempted to do that the writer addresses? Number one, they were tempted to not hold fast to the gospel and fall back to where? Lifeless religion of Judaism. That was one ditch they were going to fall back into. The other temptation they could have gone to was to not hold fast to the gospel and fall into the pagan religion of Roman mythology. So either way, you're falling back into lifeless religion or you're falling into paganism as opposed to holding fast to the gospel. And so let me just stop and ask you a question. What is the biggest encouragement, the strongest encouragement for you to hold fast? What's the writer say here? What is the strongest encouragement to you hold hold fast the gospel? God is has made an unbinding covenant with you. You have fled to Him, and He holds you, and he, His word is, is, to be, is to be trusted. He has, he's a trustworthy God. Okay? So the key word I want you to remember from this section is the word hold. 
hold. The first one was wait, right? Wait. The second word is hold. Now, when life gets tough and trials and temptations abound, we need to hold. Hold to the hope that we have of being in the refuge of the Father. Psalm 18.2 The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 34.8 O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes what? Refuge in Him. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Why is God a refuge and a very present help in trouble? Because He swore an oath. And it's an unchangeable oath. And it's a binding oath. And He swore by Himself that we would be heirs of the promise. And so, that's a strong encouragement for us to wait patiently and to hold on. He's not going to let us go. He's going to get us to the end. He's made this sure promise. He is able to do that. But then he goes on and, and, and makes it even stronger. So here's the part, part three for tonight. And that is Jesus, the steadfast anchor of our souls. Look at verse 19. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So question. What do we have as a result of God's unchangeable promise to Abraham and our salvation from the bondage of sin? Answer, he says, a sure and steadfast anchor. Now remember back in chapter 2, what did he say? Don't drift. What does an anchor do? An anchor holds deep. It helps you not move. Now, where do you throw an anchor? Those of you that are nautical people. Even if you're not a nautical person, where do you throw an anchor? You throw an anchor down, right? Okay. Now, here's the weird part. As Christians, we don't throw our anchor down. We throw our anchor up. That's what he tells us to do. Why? And that's like, well, wait, wait, wait. That goes against what I'm thinking because isn't the bedrock down? Yes, the anchor in, in nautical things is down there, but where's our anchor? Who is our anchor? Jesus. And where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. So we throw our anchor up to Him, okay? So, how is our sure... Here's another question. How is our sure and steadfast hope described? Well, I'll give you the answer and then explain it. A hope that grants us intimate access and entry into the very presence of God. What does it say there? We have, verse 19, this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that what? Enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What in the world is that? The inner place behind the curtain. Yes, you guys know it. We have this imagery of the inner place behind the curtain, which refers to the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the tabernacle. Now, let me just ask you a question. Those of you that know Bible trivia, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The temple ripped from the temple curtain. Okay. Why did it rip? 
It is finished. There's, and what did it represent? What, what separate? What, who was allowed into the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. And when was he allowed in there? One day a year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16 verse 2 tells us that. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. This will become a central theme in chapter 9, but he's briefly introducing it here. But let's just talk about the whole idea of the Holy of Holies. What does the Holy of Holies represent? God's very manifest presence. In the Old Testament, could Joe Israelite just walk into the Holy of Holies? Not even Aaron could do it unless it was under the right circumstances. So Joe Blow Israelite couldn't just, if you were to walk into the Holy of Holies, like, hey, I think, like, think about this. Think about teenagers. Hey, let's go sneak into the Holy of Holies and see what happens. Well, it's not, it's not written in the Bible, but I can imagine that two teenagers, here's a joke, two teenagers walk into the Holy of Holies. There's fire. I mean, they get, they get destroyed. They're destroyed. You can't just walk in there because that's the very presence of God. Even the high priest had to cleanse himself, had to do all these rituals in order to go in there. He had to do it in the prescribed way and was only one day a year. So the very holy place was the most sacred place on planet earth where God lived. What's the point here? Jesus has gone. What does it say there? Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner. Maybe yours says he's gone before or a precursor. Jesus has entered into the holy place. He's ripped the veil and he's brought us into direct access to the very throne of God so that we can have intimate access to the Father. Something that no Israelite ever got to experience with the holy of holies on earth. But we have it through Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes, why can we have the hope that we will have an unhindered access and entrance into the very presence of God in heaven? Well, the writer answers it for us. Jesus, as our forerunner, has gone before us on our behalf and in our place. Could we go in there first? Why is Jesus a forerunner? It's the only time this word's really used. It was often talked about a sprinter that would run fast in front of everybody else. It was often talked about a, um, a fleet of ships that would go first into battle. It was often talked about a scout that would go ahead and scout. So Jesus, in a sense, he's the only one that can go before us to get us access. Now, I want you to notice something. As a forerunner, whoops, Jesus did... Oh, here it is. As the forerunner, he did more than simply run ahead of us and scout out the terrain. He was a forerunner. What does it say there? On our behalf. Let me teach you guys some Greek, okay? I know it's late. Prepositions are important in the Greek language. This is one you guys will know, maybe. It's the Greek word huper. Huper. Okay? This is language that is crucial to the whole idea of substitutionary atonement. How do we, do, how do we describe, how do, how do we um, define huper? Well, there's the word right there. Verse 20. 
When Jesus has gone, had gone as a forerunner, what does it say there? On our behalf. On our behalf is translated who pair? On our behalf. It can also be translated in our place, in our stead. Sometimes this is translated for us. So what this means is, is that Jesus died as a substitute in our place. Could we die? No. Could we die in our place to die to, to satisfy God's wrath against sin? No, we couldn't. So what I want to do here in the closing moments that we've got, I just want to show us some passages in the New Testament where the word who perish shows up and talk about how Jesus has gone to prepare. What did Jesus say in Matthew 14? Do not fear. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it had not been so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and I will bring you there with me also. So Jesus has gone to prepare us a place. Where has He prepared a place? In the Holy of Holies in heaven. He's gone into the Holy of Holies in the direct presence of God. He's prepared that place and He's going to come back and He's going to bring us ultimately to that place. Where is He right now? He's in that place. He's in the Holy of Holies. What did the priest do in the Holy of Holies? He was the interceder. That's where chapter 7 talks about he's the high priest. It says that's why he's the high priest. But on our behalf, who pair? Let's look at some of these scriptures. What has he done? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, who pair? For our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's translated for our sake. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me on my behalf, in my place, for my sake. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Right there where it says for, for becoming a curse for us, it's the who pair on our behalf. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up on her behalf, on our behalf as the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us who pair, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Let's see if there's any more here. One more, Titus 2, 14 Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us who pair, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, he's going to introduce that very last phrase there, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, in our place, dying in our place. Where has he gone? He's gone into the curtain, behind the curtain, into the holy place, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where it gets confusing. All of chapter 7 is on Melchizedek. So we'll have to get to that next week. So here's the key word I want you to remember for this section. Rest. Now here's the three takeaways for tonight. Based upon the three words. Number one, we wait patiently 
on the sovereign Lord who's absolutely trustworthy to His promises. Just like Abraham waited patiently. We're to imitate His faith. We're to wait patiently. We're to have the hope that waits patiently because God is absolutely trustworthy. We also hold fast. While we're waiting, we hold fast to our hope knowing that God is absolutely trustworthy to His promises. And not only that, we rest secure in the hope that, that we have direct access to God through Jesus because He's absolutely trustworthy to His promises. What's the one thing that's true in all three of these? He's absolutely trustworthy to His promises. What is the t- I have an uninspired heading above this in my Bible. It says the certainty of God's promise. God can be trusted absolutely. He made a promise to Abraham. He affirmed it many times. And that same promise is available to us. And the reason we can have that is because God has given us an oath. He sworn by Himself. And He sent Jesus to die in our place to be the forerunner, to go ahead of us, to be in the Holy of Holies right now, interceding on our behalf as the high priest so that we could always have hope that we will get to heaven in the end.